Hello my friends, this is Sarah from Weird Horizon, where we explore topics on the spooky, the esoteric, the countercultural and the just plain weird. And thank you for coming back to this series on cryptozoology, focusing for one final week on the theories surrounding Yeti, Bigfoot, Sasquatch and other large hairy bipedal primates. This week we're going to be exploring the supposed connection between Bigfoot, Sasquatch and the UFO or the UAP phenomena. So we're going to be looking at some of the theories that situate Bigfoot as synonymous to or in some way related to other paranormal or supernatural phenomena, whether they are linked to UFO or UAP in some way, or whether the variety of similar paranormal experiences represents some psychic phenomena inherent to humanity. I make particular reference this week to the Sasquatch people and their interdimensional connection by Jack Lapsaritis, but I'm collecting together this week a few related theories that I've found along the way in my last few months of research. So I'm not implying that all of these theories are one and the same, just that they are related enough for me to round up here in one final little episode. But without much further ado, let's get into it before I faff indefinitely. (laughs) So to those who believe in it, the connection between Bigfoot and UFO is almost as long and well established as the UFO phenomena or the UFO community in general. So as early as 1968, the link between Bigfoot and UFOs was established. Less than two decades since UFOs or flying saucers piqued the public attention in a major way, Janet and Colin Board of Salem, Ohio, recount in Linda Milligan's The Truth About the Bigfoot Legend their experience with the two concurrent phenomena, when not only did a classic UFO land near their home, but it was accompanied by large, shadowy, man-like creatures, creatures we may now identify as Sasquatch or Bigfoot-like creatures. Indeed, it has been noted that both anomalous primates and unidentified aerial phenomena, or UOP, have a rich history in the Pacific Northwest specifically. So the Kenneth Arnold sighting, the sighting which of course launched the term flying saucer, was at Mount Rainier, Washington. So the rainy stomping ground thought to be the natural home of the creatures, whether the creatures themselves were thought to be legend, folklore, or living relic populations of the bipedal hominid variety. The Kenneth Arnold sighting was of course not the only case of a perceived overlap between the wild men and flying saucers though. So the Maury Island incident, which is another famous UFO case shrouded in mystery, apparent hoaxing and cover-up, took place at Puget Sound. So this is another area believed to be hotspots for Bigfoot activity, kind of locusts around which Sasquatch legends proliferate, and the stage for pretty much all the most famous Bigfoot and Sasquatch encounters. So thinking about the setting for the Patterson-Gimlin film, for example, the area where Jerry Crew discovered the Bigfoot tracks Whether true or false, this area seems to be a hotspot for Bigfoot encounters and Bigfoot stories, and also a concurrent hotspot for UFO and UAP encounters. 
and it is believed by some that this is not merely a coincidence, that there may be many reasons for an apparent link here and different strengths of connection, depending, of course, on your viewpoint. So in the excellent In the Valleys of the Noble Beyond by John Zader, which I referenced quite a lot last week, in researching in this area, he found a place that seemingly teemed with creatures of myth and legend, and he touches on the theories of those who say the Sasquatch and E.T. may be one and the same, and their reasons for believing as such. He puts it this way, The extraterrestrial proponents claim Sasquatches were dropped off on our planet eons ago for purposes ranging from Earth colonisation to the study of human behaviour. Those believing in a link between the two cite a clear purpose for the creatures, and like many UFO contactees before them, the reasons for contact are various yet oddly similar. So Sasquatch contactees, a phrase of course borrowed from UFO or UAP nomenclature, are at the forefront of a socio-psychological evolution that is being instigated by these highly advanced nature beings whom I call the Sasquatch people. So says Lapsaritis in the aforementioned The Sasquatch People and Their Interdimensional Connection. So in the book he calls the Sasquatch evolved beings, in much the same way contactees speak of their extraterrestrial contact as more evolved than us, offering wisdom and knowledge, a purely utopian idea of a deadly fate for us, sidestepped with the help of a wise brotherhood in the stars. So this is going to sound very, very familiar to us. If you have listened to my series, almost a year old now, on UFO religions, this is going to sound very familiar to the purely millennial ideas of ushering in a kind of new age for humanity. For people who believe the Sasquatch represent this kind of contact, the offering of wisdom that they bring is a very positive one and comes to us at a point where the earth seems to be in crisis. But I think the naming of themselves as contactees is pretty crucial and we're going to explore that a little bit now. So probably the most famous UFO contactee who you may have heard of, again, if you have listened to my series on UFO religions, you probably remember him, is one George Adamski, whose friendship with a Nordic-looking Venusian named Orthon helped to galvanise the very new UFO scene down one of two paths. And I don't think this is an unfair comparison to make. I feel like in the past few weeks we have explored this kind of branching also taking place in Bigfoot circles between those on the one hand who fear the creatures but ultimately believe that the phenomena can be explained and so kind of made less scary by science and the application of science and those who view the creatures as simply beyond human and therefore capable of lending us a more than human wisdom. So the group we are talking about today is very much in the latter camp. But like UFO contactees, unfortunately, it is not as simple as the beings simply presenting themselves to the world as is and offering knowledge. To quote again, the beings say they have wisdom to share, but our inflated egos are blinding us from the truth. 
So immediately, I think we can find some very simple reasons for aligning Bigfoot and Sasquatch behavior with this contactee movement and the UFO or UAP community in general. For one, the UFO community is a much larger community, although the Bigfoot community is rapidly growing also. So it is a little more familiar to many, and like UFO and UAP, membership of a community of this kind can serve to offer many comforts. So like Orthon to Adamski, for some these beings represent a way by which we may escape the most dangerous trends of humanity. So we've already spoken of the explicit link drawn between the Sasquatch and efforts and struggles involved uh, with climate change, climate destruction and mass extinctions. There have been many attempts to even just use the image of the legendary creature as a way of preserving the large habitats of the Pacific Northwest from logging and just general destruction. If the creatures themselves could present us with a way through this man-made disaster, it might offer not just a solution to the worsening problem, but an example of a non-human intelligence bringing us closer to the rest of the world and potentially presenting an alternative way for non-human people to live in a way that is more harmonious with nature. Reconfiguring Bigfoot in this way also, of course, presents a way of reconfiguring a potentially frightening paranormal experience into something more full of hope. So like Adamski, Lapsaritis forms an ongoing relationship with his contacts, a relationship which offers him a sense of protection, safety and help. This is a movement often undergone by those who have experienced alien abduction, um, experiencing on the one hand terror, on the other hand a sense of familiarity with their regular visitors and the sense of communion in Whitley Stryber's book of the same name. So Lapsaritas even states in his book that he was offered assistance in finding the best cabin for him to live in, so his needs being close to a natural well, at a reasonable price, and with a washer and dryer. The creatures, even when they lived a different lifestyle to him, were thought to be especially intelligent to his needs and help him in all manner of sophisticated ways. So in his mind, people have it the wrong way around, being frightened of the wilderness and feeling safety in cities and civilization. With the loving and welcoming impression of the creatures, the unknown can not only be known, but it can be welcoming. Fred Beck of the Ape Canyon incident, another famous Bigfoot encounter, a very frightening encounter, also in his later years kind of transformed his dramatic and terrifying experience into a supernatural or metaphysical encounter, perhaps in an effort to better make sense of it all. So he was one of a party of miners attacked by large bipedal ape creatures in the 1920s. And this is another legend of the Pacific Northwest again. So in this terrifying ordeal, they, their cabin was besieged by ape creatures which reached through 
the gaps in the cabin and almost tore the cabin apart. It only stopped when the sun came up in the morning and they managed to swiftly escape. The point um, in the story, which I really love, is they underline how terrified these sort of grizzled miners were by the encounter that they were so scared that they left in the morning without making breakfast. I, yeah, that speaks to me quite deeply. I, I love that little that little detail. Again, this is another legend of the Pacific Northwest. So in his words, he believed the abominable snowmen, so referring to them by kind of the, the Yeti name, but in the sort of era that he's speaking, the two are often used interchangeably. So he believed the abominable snowmen are from a lower plane. When the condition and vibration is at a certain frequency, they can easily for a time appear in a very solid body. So this is echoing a lot of the ideas around um, UFOs from the time as well, actually. The idea that they may exist on a different sort of vibratory plane to us and appear solid in certain guises, but disappear in others, explaining why there is only very specific certain kinds of evidence found for both. But although he made an effort to distance himself from the rest of his party in order to kind of protect protect their anonymity, Beck thought it important to give his view of the situation, one in greater and greater contrast to the scientific Sasquatch efforts as time went on. It did, however, as a point of contrast to Lapsaritis, emphasise that in Beck's eyes, the creatures were not as evolved as humans, thus stripping them to a certain extent of their ability to cause fear. They were animals, unexplainable animals existing on some slightly different frequency from us, but nonetheless animals. But if we're speaking critically, this kind of contactee experience does something crucial that we need to address. So it mediates this relationship, this sharing of intelligence through a chosen human. So in Lapsaritis' case, it is him. And for better or for worse, he is situated slap bang in the middle of a struggle for the fate of the entire world. And the desire to maintain and also strengthen this privileged position was a desire which, at least in Adamski's case, made him one of the most famous but also controversial figures in UFO history. So his struggle to provide proof for his outlandish claims resulted in him being accused of perpetuating a variety of crude hoaxes, as well as discrediting the UFO research effort and setting it back in its efforts to bring legitimacy to the field. So there is an opposition here between the scientific efforts of UFO researchers and the contactees. There is a gulf between them that we saw when we talked about UFO religions, and there is a similar I would, gulf, I would argue, in Bigfoot community. Or at least there is a kind of valley that has to be negotiated in very specific ways. So Lapsaritis has to tread very carefully to avoid the same traps that George Adamski fell into. 
So he situates himself as a spokesperson for a community of various Sasquatch peoples. So in his words, it is important to note that the Sasquatch as a people, with numerous clans and tribes throughout the North American continent, have asked me to write this book about them in order to directly affect societal awareness of them. So he describes them as fitting all definitions that anthropologically describe people and culture, and that their personhood is as valid as any other human. So he actually puts us and the Sasquatch on a sort of level playing field in that specific way. And his book on the Sasquatch people and their quantum connection repeatedly states that the book is about their stories, but they are by definition mediated by and through him. So this side of the Bigfoot Sasquatch community, too many is labelled kind of unfairly and again treading the same paths as the UFO community, as the kind of lunatic fringe. And of course... Out that comes from some people labelling ways of doing Bigfoot investigations. There being the right way and there being the wrong way. And to most, this is the wrong way, as it is too dependent on the individual's experience. It shies away from the potentially doomed desire for physical, empirical proof, which was the driving force behind the scientific efforts. But I think, of course, it is a natural flip side to what has come before. And when I started to research this topic, I was not at all surprised to find some people taking the community in the same direction as we've seen the UFO community go. As as mentioned, a lot of these stories are simply just occurring and being spread in the same areas. So it is not unusual for some supernatural stories and supernatural legends to kind of be discussed in the same company, to be of interest to the same people, and therefore I feel that it's kind of natural that they take a similar path in this area. But some people believe there's something deeper than that, that we may be seeing a sort of natural compulsion at play here. And this is something we will touch on in just a few minutes when we look at something called borderline phenomena later. But to bring it back to Lapsaritis, communication is everything, he says. The Sasquatch and star people are synonymous. They are one and the same, just different races working together. And when he talks of star people, of course, he is talking about a race of intelligent extraterrestrials. Their goals are one, Save the planet from being environmentally destroyed. Two, find Earth people who are evolved enough to work with them. So like early UFO contactees, the creatures are contacting with a message, a way to avoid certain doom that humanity is headed towards some catastrophe of our own making. But in order to subvert this, they cannot appear to everyone. They can only appear to a certain kind of person, someone worthy and capable of taking on this guidance offered. Someone like Lapsaritis and some of his close 
friends. So again to quotes. The Sasquatch and the friendly ETs are here as a support group to those who are spiritually evolving away from a way of life that is severely detrimental to all life on planet Earth. So in describing the creatures as at least spiritually driven beings, Lapsaritus aligns his kind of Sasquatch with certain Native American and First Nations versions of the creatures and draws it away from the anomalous primate crowd. But again, it is a theory which attempts to reconcile with the issue we've come up against again and again with Sasquatch-like creatures. The lack of tangible evidence, despite the overwhelming amount of anecdotal evidence. So in Lapsaritis' eyes, the Sasquatch are able to appear and disappear at will as creatures traversing the quantum dimension. Therefore, echoing the sense we've already heard again and again, anecdotally, as a kind of gut feeling, that when the creatures appear, they do so as a conscious choice. And when they leave evidence behind, they do so as a conscious choice. So this is something we have heard over and over again. So Tom Powell in The Locals echoes this sentiment over and over again. And it's also very similar to what we heard from Fred Beck of the Ape Canyon incidents. The idea of appearing physically willingly, the idea that they can control the physical appearance or the impression of their physical appearance at will. So that is a couple of ways in which these theories try to deal with the crucial issue at the heart of Bigfoot studies, as we've come across again and again, the lack of physical, tangible evidence. But in this case, Lapsaritas states that you know, evidence of this kind really comes down to the strength of connection with the creatures and their willingness to appear to you and help you. But this relationship and this friendship was not created overnight, but by a process which he believes can at least in theory be duplicated. And the way he established this relationship was by taking on some of the qualities of a Sasquatch in a non-threatening way. So interestingly, we have spoken of various ways that people consciously or unconsciously take on aspects of the Sasquatch in either their relentless pursuit of them or some kind of fear response or as part of a legendary process by which man is transformed by nature. But this seems to be the first time, other than simple hoaxing, where there is a conscious effort to be more Sasquatch, and it is used in this way to build a relationship with them. And I think it's interesting that we find this, this process, this spectrum, coming up again and again in all the guises by which we see the Sasquatch. We always see the Sasquatch as compared or contrasted with man in some way. But it makes sense to bring the creatures back to something like humans, to something we feel we understand. To quote Lapsaritis again, the beings live in a quantum realm that is really part of mainstream physics, 
a merging of humanistic anthropology and quantum mechanics will advance us towards solving this mystery. So in his words, they are not discoverable by modern science, not because they are non-corporeal, but because the science of quantum mechanics is currently incomplete and misunderstood by many. And simply that, again to quote, the wild people step backwards and forwards through cracks in the fabric of time, cracks they understand and we don't. But maybe one day we will. And on the forefront of quantum mechanics at the moment, there are a lot of questions about breaking down this relationship that we believe is crucial and inherent to everything, which simply isn't. Simple cause and effect and the idea of our perception of linear time and how this perception affects how we see the rest of the world. At a quantum level, this is not the fundamental truth that we believe it to be. And therefore, these cracks in time, the idea that time could not be truly linear, is something that we're starting to sort of tangle with at the quantum level. Therefore, the idea that creatures could exploit this to disappear and appear at will is not as far-fetched as it seems. What's more, the creatures exhibit psi-like powers. Again, parapsychological powers which are not supernatural, it's believed, but merely outpacing current science. But this psychic connection is something we saw in some Native American legends, where the creatures were said to have some hypnotic powers, said to be able to give off a non-corporeal sense of presence, something which Lapsaritas cites again and again as evidence for why those seeking the creatures for the wrong reasons are turned off the surge. It is also again something referenced in Tom Powell's The Locals. But in terms of being receptive to this psychic communication, it takes a certain kind of person, someone with an open mind to receive their messages. It takes a broader attitude to recognise the peopleness of the creatures, in the same way as he says, the Plains Indians considered the buffalo as a distinct people. The Northwest Coast Indians regarded the salmon as a people. Equality is thus not simply a human attribute, but a recognition of the creatureness of all creation. And this word creation touches on one of the most interesting things I find with Lapsaritas is that he situates this belief in a multitude of non-human but human-level peoples existing on a quantum level and squares this with his faith, a specifically Christian faith. So he presents a note left to him written by an ancient one, which is a more humanly proportioned, less animal-like tribe of Sasquatch, um, which reads as such. Some say men want to kill us. We are people, not Elohim, not Nephilim, not evil spirits. We are first people, seed of Adam, not of Cain. So again, this appears to touch on something we've spoken of in Bigfoot lore, the link to the Mormon belief as Sasquatch as a embodiment of 
Cain, the first biblical murderer. So in this Mormon belief, the creature is doomed to walk the earth forever as a punishment for his wrongs. But Lapsaritis specifically denounces this here. In fact, in his timeline of events, Sasquatch specifically predate humans. And he says that an ancient one said that the humans were seeded here on earth by ETs after they and the Sasquatch people were seeded. So in this timeline, Sasquatch are our seniors, thus potentially explaining their relative wisdom. But he also leaves up this idea of who these ETs are doing the seeding and linking it back to very Christian religious ideas brings in the implication that you still have the possibility of God's creation and the multitude of God's creation somewhere along the line with this seeding. But I just think it's very interesting. But Beck of the Ape Canyon incidents also entangles these metaphysical creatures with his Christian faith. But it's slightly less generous to the Sasquatch in his estimation. The human soul, he says, once dwelled in a spiritual body and eventually incarnated at the fall of man into the bodies we have now. It is by now a familiar story that it is in part our freedom to choose, our free will, that ensnares us in this fall from divinity, from the Garden of Eden. It is this which traps us in our mortal and human bodies, but it is through triumph over this that we may one day take our place once again beside God. And again to quote Beck, the beings we call abominable snowmen were not of the necessary high development to incarnate in human form. They had not reached that scale of spiritual evolution. So for Beck, the creatures are one step below us in their spiritual evolution, not blessed and cursed with humanity in the same way that we are. And again, by implication, it draws back in this Mormon idea that if they are not blessed and cursed with humanity in the same way that we are, they don't have the same privileged place on the potential to find their place beside God again. They, this is something that's not available to them. But we're getting a little bit off topic there, so. But increasingly, it feels like Bigfoot or Sasquatch may be a product of humanity in some way. So an unconscious reflection or a foil for it, or something more like a reflex. So this is a theory championed by paranormal and cryptozoological writers Jerome Clark and Lauren Coleman, that of the idea of borderline phenomena, which I mentioned earlier. And again, this comes from Linda Milligan's The Truth About Bigfoot. So in speaking of the so-called psychic or parapsychological phenomena, the human at the heart of the situation cannot be ignored. So in their theory... Signals must be filtered through human consciousness and perception, which shape the manifestations to conform to certain archetypal forms that are both strange and yet oddly familiar to us. Strange because they appear supernatural or extraterrestrial, yet familiar because, in a sense, we have created them. 
So this idea of archetypal forms is one which saturates paranormal and esoteric thought in the idea that there seem to be certain patterns, certain characteristics, even whole narratives which are intrinsic to the human understanding of the world around us, perhaps because we are human. And when we mention this, forms that are strange yet oddly familiar, supernatural yet created by us, Bigfoot may come to mind, but equally extraterrestrial visitation may come to mind. We've already come across this idea in the form of Jungian archetypes, i.e. symbols derived from, in his theory, the collective unconscious, a kind of innate knowledge born through the experience of human history and available to us as a form of instinct. It is believed that some shared aspects of paranormal experience may draw on or interact with the archetypes and help to explain the seeming universality of some of the strangest of supernatural experiences. So again, this could help to explain why so many people have such similar experiences, yet a seemingly culturally cut off from one another to the point that you cannot just say, oh, you saw that on TV or you read about that in a newspaper and therefore your mind fills in the blanks. It forms an explanation for eerily similar experiences when there seems to be a lack of an outside stimulus to explain it. But of course this theory, as believed by Clark and Coleman, still implies the force of some kind of external stimuli that is then worked on by the mind. So the signal in this case of some outward force pressing inwards, but merely suggests a reason for the seeming patterns in what we perceive, particularly at the very edge of our understanding. It kind of cracks the door open for theories on what this outside stimulus is, but kind of uses the explanation that what we don't understand, we of course attempt to fit into pre-established forms. And this is a natural gift that humans have, our gift for problem solving and pattern finding. But as mentioned, the generating mechanism for this external signal is unknown. But this theory says that it undergoes some kind of transformation in the human brain. And again, is an attempt to explain why there are also only certain types of physical evidence found, similar to with ghost sightings. Why we only see and hear fragments of beings which are implied to be as complicated as we are. So it's a way to explain a sort of plethora of unexplained phenomena that more and more people are coming to believe in broadly. And it would help to explain without reducing them to very ill-fitting medical or scientific explanations, the commonality of experiences around multiple paranormal and supernatural experiences, not just Bigfoot, and the similarity between Sasquatch and UFO encounters, haunting and abduction narratives, just to highlight a few brief examples. It also, of course, can be related to the theory about relic hominid populations and brings the anomalous primate field into something more paranormal, 
transforming the idea touted by people such as Drs. Jeff Meldrum and Grover Krantz, that the image of them might might represent some kind of genetic memory of times when Homo sapiens shared the planet with other species of hominids, and that this might be some kind of collective memory that could be drawn upon. So if, as humans, we have some innate genetic memory of the time we shared our planet with another larger bipedal hominid, it could explain that when faced with seeming incomplete jigsaw of evidence, our brain fills in the blanks with this one very specific experience. And as late as 2021, the discovery of the skull dubbed Dragon Man seemed to support the idea that we did indeed share the planet at one point with other hominids, other hominids quite a bit larger than us. So the question is, is there a process by which this genetic memory or Jungian archetype is transformed into the encounter or impression of an encounter of a flesh and blood creature. If there is, says the theory of those such as Lapsaritis, it occurs in the interaction between quantum mechanics and the human brain, two areas, of course, in which our scientific understanding is very much still in its infancy. And therefore the answer may exist in this seemingly vanishing scientific frontier of the unknown, always one step ahead of us. And that is where we have always been every single week, just stepping a toe into this vanishing sort of frontier of the unknown where Bigfoot and Sasquatch seem to reside. And with that incredibly vague ending where they have no answers, um, (laughs) we will conclude for now our exploration on the Bigfoot and Sasquatch phenomena and some of the theories around them and some of the key players involved. I really hope it's been as interesting to listen to as it has been to research for me. If not, and you've stuck with me, I can't thank you enough for letting me indulge in this topic for so long but we are done here for now but we will be back no doubt next week we'll be moving on to something new and we'll be perilously close to the one year anniversary of this podcast which is just kind of insane to be honest um a lot has happened in the last year some good mostly bad um but we're still here and i have no intention to stop anytime soon. This has been an absolute lifeline for me and there is something incredibly exciting coming up in October. So I hope you stick around for that. Um, I think you'll I think you'll like it. But um, in the meantime you can find me wherever podcasts, you know, shrink into the vanishing frontier. And you can chat with me on Twitter as Weird Horizon and on Instagram as Weird Horizon Podcasts and if you have any ideas on topics you'd like me to cover I would love to hear them I will add them onto the very long list but I'm literally always looking for new topics to grab me the way I do this is 
I will kind of shop around a little bit for ideas and wait for a little in on the topic and find something that I really get obsessed with for a little while and then just follow it as far as it goes. So it's a little window into this process. Um, but much love as always for now. Bye.